This is your host, Dr. Mesma Shabazz. Hello, Pastor Crystal. So happy to see you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. We have a few people looking at watching this live and I'm hoping we'll take this and share our thoughts and hearts with them. So welcome to my round table. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. One of the things that I was thinking about, especially from Memorial Day to now, is thinking about how a lot of people have sacrificed so much so that we will experience freedoms. But those freedoms are tenuous right now. It's almost like we can't fall asleep on it. We mm -hmm. have to stay vigilant yes. in moving things to get lives better. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? What would you like to say in relation to that? I agree with you. As the people of God, meaning the people of the kingdom of love and justice and liberty and liberation, we have to not only rejoice with all that we have. We have an inheritance. We have freedoms. It was costly. It was not only costly, it was costly to our Savior who gave us all of our spiritual freedoms. And then it was costly to those who, like you mentioned, to those who gave their lives for our freedoms right here in this country, on this, on this land of the free and the brave. However, because we are people of counsel, people of knowledge, and people of wisdom, we know that the residue of some of the errors of this country has affected and still affects masses of people. Right. So those of us with the knowledge, the wisdom, the power, the gifting, the kingdom, the kingdom people, we have the kingdom right. living within us. We can't get comfortable, meaning we have to seek out places where people are still in bondage. We have to open up our eyes. We have to not ignore a Lazarus at the gate and step over Lazarus and then go into our huge state, sit down and eat. We know Lazarus is sitting at the gate. No, we have to look for where Lazarus is because where Lazarus is is where our Savior is. It's in the eyes. It's in the hearts of those who are without, those who are in need. And as we do that as people of God, then we continue our light shines and we continue our liberation. We're freed in the kingdom to help free others. And that's so important for all of us to remember. That's wonderful. One of the things that I was thinking about as you were saying that was that during the past year, we've all been affected in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. We've been shut down, closed off mm -hmm. from everything else we knew, our relationships, and we've seen the vulnerabilities within the system mm -hmm. you know, and the things we need to improve. And so one of the things, as you were saying, is also tying it to having peace and harmony and justice in our experience. What role do you see the church playing in this? We as the church, the people are the church. We play such an important role. I look at our history and I look at the time of slavery and the role the church played in the, during the time of slavery. There are many times when the church, because they could not forcefully come in and use their power, they just turned the other way and looked the other way. And in the meantime, sons and daughters of God, who were people of color, were being traumatized, tortured, raped, stolen. We have to learn from that error of turning our eyes the other way. 
we are, and as Methodists, I love being a Methodist, we take baptism vows that we will stand up against evil in every form. We will stand up against injustice in every form that it may present itself. So if we're turning our head and looking the other way and not doing anything, we're not fulfilling why we were set free in the first place. We're not fulfilling our own purpose. Christ living in us empowers us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be change agents in our community, in our homes, on our jobs. We have to. It's, it's not a decision to make. It's something that we require to do as reborn in Christ. Because it's what Jesus is going to do. And if Jesus is living in us, truly living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's what we will do. Because it's not us. It's, it's Christ who lives in us, working through us. Well, you know, I have expressed that I've been traumatized in some of my experiences with the church represents, right? And mm -hmm. to give a background to those listeners that may not know where I'm coming from, is that, you know, if you go to my home country and you go to where they brought the slaves and how they kept them, you go to the dungeon and right above the dungeon is a church. So the people who were perpetrating this evil could find themselves in a place where they could still go to church and pray about it. And the contradiction is mind-boggling a bit. How do you see us working through mm -hmm. some of these things? Mm -hmm. Because it's happening in the present. Wow. Oh, and, oh, yes. And it has happened throughout our history. That duplicity, I, as a theologian, as a studier, you know, as a person who has studied the scripture, I made it a point to visit Israel because when I look on the map and I see where Israel is located, Israel is right on the other side of Egypt, which is right in Africa. So I wanted to see what trees, what the people were like. I wanted to know for myself. And then I'm a historian before becoming a, a pastor. I was a professor and a, an educator, so teaching history and humanities, English. So doing the history and really, really studying the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew people, there are hard truths that we must accept. It's a fact that television and mass media has romanticized Jesus and the story of Christ. When we watch the story of Christ, we see European man with his beard and his long hair. Right. Jesus didn't look like that. That's not what Jesus looked like. If we were to tell the truth, Israel is in a tropical place. When you go there, all you see is tropical trees. I was in the desert and we went up to the top of Masada. It was 105 degrees. So the people, the original Israelites, they needed to have melanin in their skin in order to survive. And if you do the scientific study of the original people who lived in that area, they were people of color. But because of mass media technology, and because of slavery, and because the, the dominant culture had to subvert the people, they had to subdue the people. They couldn't tell the people, oh, our savior is a man of color. Right. <laughs> he looks just like you. They had to reverse that in order for people of color to feel less than human. That was a lie. The enemy is the father of all lies. However, today we have enough technology, we have enough intelligence we have enough knowledge to really know the truth. And the truth is Jesus was a man of color. The truth is that on that mountain Masada, that was one of, that it occurred the last battle between the Israelites and the Romans 
They fought it on the mountain of Masada. A thousand Hebrew people threw themselves off the mountain because the Romans were climbing up the mountain in order to take them back into slavery. They refused to go back into slavery. Instead, they committed mass suicide. So when I think of those people who are hiding on in King Herod's, they called it his um, fortress on this huge mountain. These were people of color being taken into slavery. I'm thinking of the people who have suffered what, you know, what our ancestors right. have suffered here. Right. And that's a hard truth. And our white sisters and brothers, Christian, our white Christian sisters and brothers must acknowledge these truths that has caused people to be harmed, lied to, subjugated, <laughs> put right. in bondage so that freedom can happen. And the church, because of these lies within the church, the church has been able to play this two-part role, the role where I can kill a sister or brother who is of melanated skin or darker skin, right? right? I can put them into slavery. I can rob them from their home. That's duplicity. That is not Christianity. That is opposite from what Christ taught us and what Christ died for. So we as Christians, when and we do have some work to do because we have the younger generation who's not tolerating it. They don't want to hear the lies, but we have to find a way to accept the truths, to speak the truth, and then to move forward into a harmonized unity together, healing what was right. bruised. Right. And talking about the young generation not tolerating it, I can share this with that in my class, my students we have the most arguments when we are talking about Christianity. So I'm very pleased that we are acknowledging that there is some things we can improve on. Okay. Now, with that in mind, what I'm thinking or feeling is that love is action. And yeah. if, we, if we are looking at what Christ came to teach us, then it should be reflected in our actions and towards one another. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I noticed as I was reading your bio was that at age 14, and when I was running away from the church, you were preaching. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this is so wonderful. Can you share a little, you know, what drove you to do that? What, what were you experiencing at that time? You mean becoming a pastor or preaching? Preaching all of this, all of it, right, yeah. Oh my, I ran away for a long time. I did. <laughs> I've always, I've been a studier, a studier of the, of the scriptures since childhood. I've always drawn to the word of God, the spirit of God. And I, because I also love the English language, I took a lot of it literally. When Jesus says, my word is spirit, I thought if I can read a chapter, when I was a young child, like 11, 12, 13, <laughs> If I can read a chapter a day, I would be filled up with Jesus's spirit because his word is the spirit. So all I had to do was eat the word continually, meditate on it, then get as much as it into me. <laughs> and I, I did that as a, as a young person. And I, I wrote my term paper on putting prayer back into church. I fasted on Tuesdays. I brought my Bible to church and sat it on my desk. I was that type of young person. But I didn't know that God was calling me into ministry. I really didn't. When I was about 18, one of my pastors said, God is calling you into ministry from the pulpit. And then she came and she put the mic on my by my mouth. And she started the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then she stopped and I was supposed to finish the scripture. 
but I froze and I completely forgot the whole scripture. <laughs> I was very, very shy. <laughs> and my younger sister, who's also a minister, she screams out, that's all that he gave his only begotten son. Now whosoever believes, you know, she finishes it. So I ended up going into public schools, inner city public schools, because I really, I saw the disparity between affluent suburban schools that were mostly white, which I was, I'm a product of for, from high school and inner city schools, which are mostly African-American and struggling schools, which I'm, I'm a product of from junior high school. And those experiences of both let me know that our young African-American kids are being robbed of their education. They're not getting the same education because the teachers are getting frustrated and they give up. So I said, I want to go back into inner city in order to be that teacher that does not give up, that encourages that young person of color to push beyond the obstacles and to really reach for their dreams and get higher education. And I did that. But while I did that in my 20s, <laughs> in my early 30s, I was very active in the church as well. And they saw my gifts and I became the associate pastor while teaching. It was only until my early, well, my late 30s that I really truly stepped into the call and God made it very, very clear. You've been running away and this is where I'm calling you. And I'm like, wow, it was almost a shock. I was humble, mm -hmm. but it's something that I love. It's natural. I love preaching the word. I love serving the sacraments. You know, I love gathering the people of God together in praise, in faith, in fellowship. So here I am. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you made an interesting journey. Yeah, you've had an interesting journey so far, and you're still very young, so I know there's more to come. Things that I wanted to touch on is spiritual practice. Now, mm -hmm. the things that I know firsthand, and I encourage my clients also to do that, is to have a spiritual practice. Oh, yeah. Right. So what can you share? why it is important for people to have a spiritual practice? Well, it's important to have specific <laughs> practices that keep you strong, grounded, and connected. Prayer is so important to me. I wake up and the first thing I do is talk to God. It starts in my bed. I meditate on the Lord when I open my eyes. And then I, I, I was that kid that took the word literally. So I always found my closet. I always in the closet. So I, I still do now have a closet that I go to, to pray in. And throughout the day, it's in all that I do, there's a conversation. There are things before God. There, there are sometimes I'm listening to, to the Holy Spirit and I'm very quiet, trying to hear and really just fine tune the Spirit and what the Spirit is saying. And then there are prayer practices where I make my petition very known to God and in praying, it's, it's two-way. It's, it's knowing that God loves you, so there's a praise in prayer. But then it's also believing that God has heard you because God has loved you and because God is present with you. So all of that works together. Also, another practice for me is rejoicing in the Lord at all times. That's so important to me. There's so many things that you can be frustrated about. There's so many things that you can be anxious about, worried about, depressed about. There's a whole lot of things, <laughs> but it doesn't do your spirit any good to be defeated in your own mind. So throughout the day, I'm constantly saying, Lord, I praise you. Lord, I thank you. It doesn't matter what it looks like. God is in control. God has the answer. God has the way of escape. 
and God's going to make a way. And then another spiritual practice, of course, is study and reading the word and, and chewing on the word, understanding it. I found for me as clergy, it's important that I discuss the word with other clergy, <laughs> especially, you know, as, as a preacher, I want to know what other clergy has feel and think about the word. But then self-care is important. Having a day of Sabbath, having a day of rest where you are not working, your mind is not focused on what you have to do for others, but your mind is focused on just rejuvenating yourself. Just right. that one day during the week, it's so key and important because you can give so much out and you're not filled up back. If you don't fill yourself back up, then you'll run dry and then right. you'll be a mess and there'll be nothing for you to give out. But if you save a little piece of your week, that one Sabbath day to just rest and refill yourself, then you'll have more to give out after that Sabbath for the remainder of that week. So those are some of my spiritual practices. I do have a covenant group that I feel very comfortable with, which is a group that's very selective and very small. And it's the same. It's a group that I trust. So if I do have things that I'm going through, I can talk to other clergy that are within that covenant group. So those are some of mine. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you live in this process every day. It exactly what to do to shift to really being present with God. Yeah. Now, there are, in our social experience, work, especially workplaces, I know mm -hmm. a lot of things happen there. And people have to get up every day and go to a place that really tears them, tears at them. Right? Yes. Yes. What would you suggest that they can do to shift? One simple thing that they can do to mm -hmm. shift so that they will have a practice, a process that would remind them of the importance of being centered. I agree. Yeah. I would find when I did work within a school district, I would find a quiet space. I would go into the bathroom. <laughs> I, I would find a quiet, alone space. And I would, whether it was prayer, whether it was praise, I would always have a space that I can go to, to be alone and to be, to set myself apart. And whether I had to pray, read the scripture, or praise God for something, I had somewhere to go. It was part of my day-to-day. -day. And then being patient with yourself and being patient with others, really knowing that people have faults. Not everyone is mature. As much as we want everyone to be kind and gentle and loving and mature and love, mm -mm, a lot of people are not. A lot of people are broken. A lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are dealing with tremendous amount of baggage from what their home life or what their work life or what bills aren't paid. So being patient with yourself and then being patient with others. Remember that we're called to be disciples, to wash one another's feet. And God loved the whole world, not only those who are saved, but those who are unsaved. So not allowing other people's weaknesses to penetrate, but coming to a place of strength where, you know, the world was broken. The world is still places of brokenness, but Christ lives in me. And I, I have a power in me that's stronger than all the obstacles outside. So having that patience, I, I call it almost wearing people on your sleeve, like walking really lightly. Don't take people so seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. Be patient, be loving to yourself and to others in that way. That's beautiful. I can see a lot of people, if they take this advice that you just laid out can really 
make a lot of difference in their day-to-day activities and relationships with others. Now, going to shift gears a little bit because we start this conversation and you know time kind of keeps us so quickly. It's amazing, but it's when you're having fun that happens. So one of the things that I, you and I have daughters and they're both growing up to experience different age groups, but they still have to go through some of this ex- life experiences that we know about. Yes. And there are a lot of trappings. Oh, yes. You know, so, some of it I call stepping in a landmine. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> so coming from the spiritual place, what advice would you give to the younger generation, especially girls, because they have to overcome a lot more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I tell my daughter what my mother told me, to seek God in my youth, in my younger days. I'm that strong believer that everything that we need is found in God's word, in a relationship with God. So I encourage her and I encourage all young people, God loves you so much. (laughs) God knows that there's nothing you can hide from God. God knows it all. So get to know God, seek God, even when you don't feel like it, it's only going to strengthen you. That's me, that's most important because that's going to be the foundation. And then the parent-child relationship is really key. Being able to allow our young people to express themselves freely, being that safe, open space for them to say anything, even if it's really out there. Right. <laughs> you want them to say it to you. <laughs> you, you know, you rather them share it with you and you rather be that voice or that influence from a listening perspective. But if you put up, especially in their teenage years, if you put up a lot of strictness and they don't have a place to come, then they're going to have to do a lot of experimenting and there will be a lot of traps. But being that safe, comforting, welcoming space where you can tell me anything, let's talk about this. That way, one thing that the enemy, our adversary tries is to get us isolated and feel like there's no one who's going to understand. No one has gone through this. Yeah. And that's not true goals? Where are we going? Because, and I, I make sure that she also acknowledges what the chaps are. I tell her, and I, my mom didn't share with me, which my mom had six girls. She didn't share with us. Well, she didn't share with me. She might've shared with my younger sister, Wendy, <laughs> but she didn't share with us about her path. I'm different there. And I think it's because I have one daughter. <laughs> so I end up sharing with her, okay, this is what happened. And it kind of gets thrown back in my face. My daughter will say, well, you kissed a boy when you were 12. (laughs) I'm like, okay. But it's just a way to let them know that you're also human. You've experienced it. But this having that strong relationship with God and then having a place to come to talk to that's safe, it allows your life to be kept in order. I tell my daughter, we grew up in the ghetto and there were girls my age who got pregnant at 15. And I looked at that and I said, I don't want that to happen to me. (laughs) I want to go to college. We struggled financially. I was like, I want to have a nice car. I have to be able to pay for my own things. And and I had to make specific decisions to make sure that didn't happen. So I share those stories with her so that she can have place. And I don't know if it's the right way yet because she's my only daughter. (laughs) And then lots and lots of prayer. Lots and lots of prayer. And it's really trust that she belongs to God and God will cover her and protect her in in every place she goes. 
but I do. I have that open communication with her so that she expresses to me and she has somewhere to come that's safe. I agree with you on everything you've said so far because my daughter and I are very close as well. So home is safe yeah. as far as concerned because that is also love, right? Yes. And there's, it, it's wonderful to have this kind of relationship because I can also reflect back to my mother and the things I knew about her, I found out when I was way grown up and I was <laughs> curious enough to ask certain mm-hmm. questions, but mm-hmm. they didn't share that part of themselves with us, right? So mm-hmm. I think it was a generational thing back then. Yes. As we're talking about grown-up women, mm-hmm. how do we hold that dignity, leverage our power so that we don't lose ourselves in the things we engage in? Because I think one of the things that I think about and work with each client of mine is about empowerment. Mm-hmm. How do we empower ourselves from a spiritual place? Mm. Well, my, me personally, I received and I've been able to empower other women through, I started a artist retreat. So I run an artist retreat and we have, now we're up to four different retreats per year where we have about 25 women. There's about 75 on the list, but not everyone comes to every single retreat. <laughs> So we come together and we come under one roof for about four. It can be a short retreat, which is a weekend, three nights, four days, or it could be a long retreat, which is during the summer, five nights to seven nights. And the key for that group, we come and we we bring our artwork. I'm a writer, so I'm working on a novel. Some people are painters, but we're able to have breakfast together, have dinner to have lunch and, and have this moment away from our home life, our home responsibilities, and just be able to just support one another in that inner voice, which is art, and be honest about that inner voice. To me, that's empowerment. When you have a safe space of people who are professionally on your level, and you can share, and some may be beyond, like my my partner, she's a best-selling author, and she's written maybe 15 novels. So She's a little beyond where I want to go, but I can trust her input. And because we're all friends, we support each other. We encourage each other. We love each other. So having that, and that's particularly the Creators Haven Artist Retreat. It's a a retreat for women, but you can have a hobby group. You want to have a group that's aside from your daily work, a group where you can be received and respected. And then you can do what you love and you can share it with others and you can share it with those who love you and respect you. That's where you can give empowerment because your voice is going to be important to somebody else. People are a little shy. People are a little timid about doing things these days because we're a lot. So a lot of times we're very isolated, but if we can empower one another and then receive empowerment from others, we can change the world. I agree with you. Oh my God, amen to that. Right. We changed the world. And I think it's come to, it is now that we must begin this work intensely. Because we really do need to change the world. We've been, you know, playing around and sometimes it's become singular focus from one person here, there. But as a group, I think, yeah, we need to reshape things a bit for humanity, but especially for our children. 
so yeah. they may experience a better world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as we close, since you're also part of Men's Men's Roundtable, I want to ask you, who is a woman of power and grace? Oh my, well, you are definitely a woman of power, Grace. (laughs) Absolutely. One of the most influential women of power and grace has been LaVanda Paul, who's my mother. She gave birth to eight children and she adopted two brother and sister. She raised 10 children with my dad and they're still married. She raised us all to adult age and she's a woman of power and, and faith. I would look at her in church from the junior choir. She used to sit across the church in the front. She was an evangelist. And as they would sing the songs, she would just worship in such a way where tears would fall. And she would just be in this deep worship. And me as a child watching her, it made me want to reach for God too. Because she not only worshiped from her heart, but then she was a missionary and an evangelist. So she got the whole missionary and the evangelism team together on Saturdays and they would come to our apartment and we lived in a very dangerous area at that time. But we would have to go out with signs saying, you know, no more drugs, take drugs away. This is during the 80s when the drug epidemic was very high. And she would be on the street. My dad would be playing the music and she would be ministering to everyone walking by and she'd have her missionary crew out there with her just witnessing to everyone and just, and it was natural and it was just, (laughs) and they loved her, (laughs) but, and and she worked at a health center. She worked at a healthcare center when we were young. So during Martin Luther King holidays, we would all go as a family and we would minister in song and we would go and, and just touch and hug the elders who were at home care facility. But it taught us, it taught us how to do mission. It taught us how to evangelize as a young as, and it not only taught me, but it taught all of my nine siblings <laughs> who was out there with me holding those signs, walking back and forth. So I would have to say my mother, Lavanda Paul, I was able to honor her this year by, we created a book. To, I wrote a book and I had her voice in each chapter of the book. She right. grew up on a farm in Alabama. So I was able to incorporate her voice with throughout the book as a thread. And I'm praying that we're able to do more projects like that because I I really do believe that she is a woman of power and grace. (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you. And mothers have this wisdom and, as you said, power and grace and dignity and all the love, not only for the children, but also for everyone else. So I really thank you for sharing that with us. And I hope that we can extend this conversation beyond today. So, Pastor Crystal, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege. 